There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, I'm the founder, and my mission is to help ethical entrepreneurs and holistic healers to find their voice through spiritual coaching and podcasting. I'm honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through healing, kindness, innovation, purpose, and spirit. Understanding that to create collective change, we need to be the change. It all begins with us. Tara Boyce is the host of the Addicted to Recovery podcast, an interactive memoir based on her own true story. Dropping in from Montreal, Canada, Tara shares how she was in and out of rehab 12 times for alcoholism and how she also has the added complexity of borderline personality disorder and anxiety disorder that has made her recovery remarkable. We have a frank, open and honest conversation about addiction and what it does to us, what we lose and what we gain. I hope you enjoy this connection with Tara as much as I did. Welcome, Tara, to The Ethical Evolution. Well, hello. Thank you so much, Bindi. I'm very happy to be here. Yes. Now, uh, we were just chatting off here and you're coming to us all the way from Montreal in Canada. Um, So thank you for joining us. Um, For people who don't know who you are, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, Absolutely. Well, my name is Tara Boyce. Uh, I am a lot of things, but a lot of my energy right now is being invested into a podcast, my own podcast that I have called Addicted to Recovery, the Interactive Memoir. I struggled with addiction and mental health struggles for pretty much my entire adult life and my teenage life as well. I was in and out of institutions, rehab 12 times. Mm. And it just took me a really long time to learn my lesson. And I learned a lot of the same lessons over and over and over again. But I started writing a memoir of those experiences. And as I was doing that, I noticed that, first of all, I wasn't really reading as prolifically as I used to. I was listening to a lot of podcasts and finding a lot of value there. And I also found that even as I was writing it, my perspective on things was changing as I was growing myself spiritually and learning more. And my perception of the past was constantly shifting. So I thought, well, what an interesting way to try to leverage all of the suffering and all of the mistakes that I made Mm. to make an interactive podcast where I can share some of the memoir that I wrote, but also interact with other people who may be in recovery themselves, may have similar struggles, and try to build a kind of community around sharing stories, because that's very much how I first came into acknowledging that I had a problem Mm. when I noticed I was drinking too much. I was too scared to go to any friends or family because I didn't want them to take my alcohol away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I could feel, I could own up to it 
with books. So I would sneak into the library and take out memoirs by authors like Caroline Knapp and Maria Hornbacker and leaf through them and feel known and feel seen uh, before I was able to admit to anyone else that I had a problem. So I'm trying to do a little bit of that as well. Mm. And I've spoken to a, a number of people on this show uh, who have been in recovery um, for quite a while and, um, you know, and they've also harnessed the power of podcasts to to help them uh, not only share their story, but it's almost like a, a form of therapy. Uh, do you mm-hmm. find that? Uh, I absolutely do because it, on many levels, on one level, it forces me to confront some of my biggest liabilities, such as my fear of how people are going to perceive me. Mm. And it also allows me to really work through what I'm going through. Because when you write something down, you say it out loud, it registers on a different level than when you're just thinking about it. Yeah. And trying to be as transparent as I can and connecting with other people helps a lot, but also my ego. And I'm saying this in a good way that uh, there's a lot of talk in, in recovery communities about one's character de- defects through mm. the 12-step model of recovery. And I often like to think of some of my defects as things that can be used for good or for evil in a way. Right. Um, and if I put myself out there as somebody who is in recovery and who has something to say about recovery, I have to live up to that. Right. Mm. So it, it puts it puts a kind of external pressure on me that I find very gratifying and it makes me have to step up for myself to be the kind of person I'm saying that I am. And so Yeah, it kind of keeps you accountable, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So it, it yeah, it's it's so powerful and yes, uh, I I reckon it's some of the best therapy ever. I mean, that's how I started in podcasting. My first podcast um was um called The State of You. And um, mm. and the, the first part of it was my story and I pretty much said things there that I've never said to anyone and I was like, <laughs> what are people going to think? And uh, you know mm. what? N- nothing happened. Nobody cared. Uh, <laughs> no one killed me. It was all good. Um, I'm sure a lot of people did care but maybe not in the way that, that we fear, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. So the world didn't end um, and it's all good. Um, but Tara, take us back um, to – what your alcoholism looked like. Um, <laughs> what did, <laughs> I mean, when did you know um, you seriously had a problem and you needed help? I would say the first time I said to myself, said the words out loud just to myself that I am an alcoholic, it's probably when I was 19. Wow. I had, I had just uh, suffered a loss in my life and I started drinking to deal with those emotions. And that's a very bad way to deal with emotions. I was already sort of on the path towards alcoholic drinking, but it really ramped it up. Mm -hmm. And I found myself passed out in a snowbank and I had that sort of, well, that's not normal moment. But it was also the way I was dealing with those emotions and I wasn't ready to let that go. Mm. And the first time I actually sought help for my alcoholism was probably about a year later after I um, had fallen over and woke up in, you know, a lot of blood and I had to go to the hospital and also had just been broken up with for the way I was drinking. And that was another moment of realizing that, you know, 
this is interfering with my life, but it was still such a powerful, it was still my most powerful coping tool. So I still wasn't willing to let it go. Even though I did seek outpatient therapy at that time, I was hoping they would just kind of, you know, give me some tips on how I could drink better (laughs) and or how I could get away with it better. I thought maybe Mm. I would meet all the real alcoholics and they would know all the, all the special tricks and tips and they could teach me. Uh, I didn't think that anyone actually stopped drinking. I didn't think anyone could actually live life without drinking for any reasonable amount of time. I thought, okay, maybe I could put it on the shelf for a couple of weeks until my life gets back together. Uh, But it really kind of ramped out of control in my mid-20s. And that's when the hospitalizations, frequent hospitalizations started Um, That's when I was using alcohol and getting myself into dangerous situations in which I was taken advantage of sometimes sexually. And Mm. that's when I really started to develop a whole lot of self-loathing and the rehab cycle started when I was 24. And I was in and out of that rehab cycle for about 10 years where I would go to rehab, I would get a little bit better, I would leave and I would relapse and in over and over and over, because as much as the rehab saved my life, I have I have no question about that, that if it wasn't for the fact that, well, first of all, that I do live in a country that had some subsidized treatment centers mm. available, that I absolutely would not be alive right now. Mm. But it also reinforced the idea that I cannot take care of myself because I would go there and I would feel safe. Yeah. But yet, you know, I had my my own little room and I was told where to be, what to do how to think, um, and you know, my meals were prepared for me. So it had no real resemblance to the real world. Mm. But I liked it, so I felt so safe there because I was protected from the person that was really trying to harm me, which was me. Mm. And the moment I got out, I found the world to be so intimidating, and I found the trappings of adulthood to be very intimidating, and I felt like I was flat out not qualified to run my own life. And so I think on some level, subconsciously, I would relapse because I just wanted to go back to the safe place where nothing was expected of me. Mm. But it got to a point where nothing was sustainable. I I couldn't get out of bed for more than a couple of hours a day. Um, I Everybody in my life was starting to give up on me. And I had pretty much given up on myself. And I think I had run out of... I wouldn't say excuses, but I think I could, I think I had run out of convincing lies I could tell myself about how I could make this work, this relationship with alcohol. Because mm. there was just no evidence of it working anymore. I wasn't pulling it off anymore. I wasn't, it just wasn't working. And even my favorite rehab told me that they weren't going to take me back anymore because I had been there so many times. <laughs> they were like, well, this isn't working for you either. So, mm. um, Wow. So one thing you said there that really struck me was um, the person who hurt me the most was me. Mm. That must have been uh, a huge realisation. It it wasn't. It wasn't because I kind of always knew that, that there was this almost like this shadow self, if you want to come at it from a Jungian sort of perspective that was sabotaging my best efforts, Mm. that there were these really kind of dual contradictory forces residing inside me, one of which really, really did want to get better. And the other one wanted to undermine that person. And 
I remember finding an old diary of mine from when I was a teenager in which I was saying, I feel like I'm trapped in a locked room with somebody who wants to kill me. Wow. And I don't know how to get out. So it was early on that I had that realization, but it was, it took me a very long time to figure out what to do about it. Mm. And, um, you know, you also mentioned there about, uh, you know, the hospitalizations and, you know, the injuries that resulted, um, you know, from being drunk and and things like that. Um, There's also the shame spiral that goes with that. Um, you know, like the next day, yeah. um, or you can't remember what, what has happened and mm. you just keep going through that spiral, right? Oh yeah. You absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think the, uh, the blackouts were really frightening because my blackouts would often be complete. There, there wasn't, there weren't fuzzy. There would be, Mm. oh my God, there is an entire day that is just gone. Yeah. And where am I? And what did I do? And who did I do it to? And who is around? And, and what happened to me? And the feeling of making the same mistake over and over again, especially not only that I was, I wasn't just hurting myself either. Yeah. I, I had people in my life that still cared about me in spite of myself, and I was hurting a lot of people. And the knowledge that I, and knowing that I knew that and that I kept doing the same thing, it just was fertile ground for this deep, deep, deep self-loathing. Mm. And it's really hard to get better when you hate yourself. Yeah. Why would you want to help somebody that you hate? Mm. Huh? Wow. Now, tell me about, um, again, another spiral for you, the, the uh, rehab. So 12 times in and out of rehab. Mm-hmm. What caused you to relapse when you got back out? Um, I think in a lot of ways the misconception that the way I felt in, in treatment would carry over to mm. the outside because I started to feel good. I started to feel relatively in control of my emotions. I started to be able to articulate myself well, and I started to feel good. Um, But none of my external, I I don't really like the word triggers because I find it to be kind of reductive, but none of the things that made me feel like drinking were really there. And also the, the structure of those rehabs was significant too, because I, when I was drinking for so long that I didn't have any meaning in life. Like I didn't have a meaningful job to go back to. I didn't have my own family. I had a lot of shattered relationships. So I would get back out and I would just feel like I was, I didn't know where to start. I had no real sense of identity other than being an alcoholic. And the world just seemed really big and really overwhelming. And I had no spiritual center mm. in that I didn't know what my core values were. And I, so I didn't know how to act them out. And I had been acting in a way that was against what I thought my core values were. So how could I be in alignment with them if I acted like a person who wasn't? So I just felt very empty and very scared and alcohol was what I knew. Mm. And what would you say your relationship with alcohol is now? Quite remarkably, it's pretty ambivalent. Um, It's kind of just something I see in the store that I'm not going to buy you know, kind of like, I don't know, um, non-platform sneakers or um, <laughs> um, other types of beverages I don't like, like club soda. I don't like that stuff. But 
um, I think my mind has finally just relegated it to something that I can't have. Similarly to, you know, if I had uh, a peanut allergy, I wouldn't be buying Reese's Pieces mm. for myself because it's now just it's now just something that I know is poison. Which I but the weird thing is I knew that for years and years and years, but I still couldn't not take it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's a that's a key thing is is that association that you have with it, and if you can get to that point where you just you don't have to have it and you can take it or leave it, that that is a big big step. Yeah, and just kind of coming to a point of no, neutrality where it doesn't mm. have control over me, where I don't have to avoid, I don't have to avoid stores that sell alcohol. I don't have to avoid people that drink alcohol. I don't have to avoid. You know, mm. It doesn't have power over me anymore, mm. which is remarkable because I never thought I would get to a point where I could get through a full week without just completely losing control. Yeah, and that's that's incredible. Congratulations to you. So um, if we do the stats, um, how many days are we talking now? Oh, days. Or months, um, years. <laughs> Uh, I would say about two years and eight months at this point. Well done. Yeah, two years, eight months and a bit. That's brilliant. Well done. So um, in terms of your recovery, what would you say worked for you? Like what did you do? I have a better lexicon of what didn't work for me, but honestly a lot of the things that ended up working for me were um, almost accidental. Uh, I, such as being told I couldn't go back to my favorite rehab. That was, that was one of the things, um, I did start going to meetings consistently and I had gone to like 12 step meetings and I had gone to 12 step many times before, but I always got stuck with my misunderstanding of the spiritual component of the program. Mm -hmm. I was really turned off by the word God and what I, I thought it meant, and I was also suffering extreme social anxiety. So it was mm. really hard for me to go into a room full of strangers and without drinking. So it was different in rehab because everyone was kind of stuck together and everyone was sort of on the same level. But then I would, I would get out and the people in AA in 12-step meetings often had, a, had significant sobriety. So I felt like this huge kind of status uh, discrepancy and I was really obsessed with with status and how other people perceived me and I would start drinking to allow myself to go to the meetings I'd be like well if you go to the meeting you can drink a little bit because otherwise you're not going to go because you'll be too anxious and uh, mm. but this time I I feel like I just didn't have the energy left to bargain with myself I'm just this is just what I have to do it's just kind of my job now and I was lucky enough to have met a woman in treatment who started going to a lot of the same meetings as me. So we started going together. And that really helped in terms of helping me manage my own social anxiety and also not giving me that little window, the mm. little window of time between when I leave the house and when I show up at the door of that meeting back when you could still walk to meetings and go into a door and it wasn't all on Zoom. Um, but it erased that little window of time where I could have undermined my best efforts. My parents were also breathalyzing me because I was living with my parents. Um, they were breathalyzing me at the door, which, whoa, at, at first I was like, oh, but like I, my ego did not like that one bit. But 
ultimately, I really saw it as a as a tool for accountability and also a tool for their emotional security. Like they had earned the right to feel safe in their own darn house. Yeah. Right. So the consistency of that. And I and I really kind of became a lot more open minded to what the 12 steps could offer me if I broadened my own understanding of spirituality. So that led me on a kind of quest to broaden my understanding of what it meant to be a spiritual and ethical person in the world, because I didn't have a a typical kind of um, awakening moment. I don't even think it's not typical, actually. Almost nobody yeah. I know has had that sort of like, oh, I saw the light kind, yeah. of, <laughs> kind of thing happen to them. It really doesn't happen very often. But when you go into the meetings, when you hear some of the readings, you get the idea that that happens. But I found that to do it right, and I've always been a bit of a perfectionist, I felt like I needed to find a higher power of sorts. And I still haven't found like, you know, evidence of a creator to the best of my knowledge, but to the best of my knowledge, nobody else has either. Mm. But I have found a lot of wisdom and a lot of depth through studying various spiritual disciplines. So, I mean, do you want to just go into that a little bit deeper? I mean, how did spirituality play a part in your journey? Well, I think at first I was really cynical about it because I didn't understand what it meant. Um, I kind of saw spirituality as this kind of naive new agey, um, trend Mm. almost, Mm. you know, this wishy-washy sort of LA kind of thing that wasn't real. That was a manipulative sort of tactic to sell books and crystals. But I, and I think it also didn't help that one of the first spiritual books I ever read was The Secret. And (laughs) I know it has been you know, helpful to some people, but I found it to be offensive in that you can just sort of like imagine yourself out of, of life struggles, which, and, you know, once again, if it's helpful to some people to visualize and believe in yourself, those are good principles. But I was kind of thinking, well, if somebody is in a war-torn country, for example, I don't think they can vision board themselves out of that. <laughs> um, so it felt like it was ignoring reality in a lot of ways. And So these false ideas had to be unlearned a little bit. And I also had to get my head around spirituality and religion as not necessarily being um, as oppositional as I had originally thought. And that um, one book that I read that really helped me get started was a a book by Sam Harris called uh, Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And it helped me unpack some of my hesitation about you know, what it meant to be spiritual without necessarily believing in some of the mumbo jumbo. Mm. And um, it broadened me to explore Buddhism quite a bit more and uh, explore principles of stoicism. And the more I learned, the more I learned that there were more similarities between disciplines and even within religion and spirituality than there are, you know, there are more similarities and differences. They're Mm. often just about you know, as, as your podcast stands for living an ethical life through Mm. personal empowerment and making change in the world. And, and it is one of those quests that doesn't have a finish line. So I would say that one of the most important principles for me in spirituality is humility of understanding that I will never know the answers and that, and that, 
nobody really knows the answers and to have compassion for myself and everybody else that we're all just kind of fumbling along in life, trying our best. And our best is, you know, not always perfect and it's not always pretty. Mm. But as long as I am actually trying to do my best and not actively trying to make excuses and undermine my own progress in other people's lives, then like that, that, I feel that the intention is important. I remember my grandmother used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But <laughs> from a Buddhist perspective, the intention is very important. Like, for mm. example, if, I, if you trip over my leg and fall, you're still going to fall. But it makes a difference whether I tripped you on purpose. If my leg was just there and you tripped, mm. you don't have, I'm not the kind of person you have to be scared of in the future, right? But if I did that on purpose because I wanted to see you fall on your face, then that matters, right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's something that I talk a lot about on this podcast um, mm. is spirituality and, and being a spiritual coach myself. Um, you know, it is what you make it. There, there are no rules around it. And I think that's probably a common misconception that a lot of people mm. need to let go of because, you know, they, it can just help open your life up to so many mm-hmm. opportunities and, and so much healing yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I, and I also feel that it can broaden your capacity to be compassionate and loving and accepting of, of other people, which is the foundation of so many spiritual practices. But then it's kind of ironic when you see people arguing with each other over what is right and what is wrong <laughs> in their spiritual practice that is supposed to be about being loving and compassionate. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I reflect on that often. There. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like my way, my way of being loving and compassionate is better than your way. Of being <laughs> and we seem to do that a lot. I mean, I know particularly in the last two years since COVID. I mean, since we've been cooped up, and you know, there's a whole new mindset that people have got that they need to unlearn. Um, yeah. And it's almost become an us versus them kind of thing that we really need to break down. And and what you've just said there about you know having to always be right. Um, I mean, gosh, the just the arguments alone around vaccine don't start me um but um you know just I think there's so much that as a collective consciousness um we could work through if we just understood the simple art of spirituality oh I'm I'm totally in agreement with you on that I really thought that when COVID started, it would be an almost global opportunity for people to look inward oh, and yeah. understand that we were, were part of this collective organism, that we're going through a thing together. It was a global pandemic. And I thought, well, and everyone had time and well, not everyone, I don't want but many people were in a position where their normal lives were disrupted mm. and they maybe did have more time to sit and be present with themselves. And I thought, wow, this is going to create such a beautiful change in the world. <laughs> I really believe that. Um, but I felt that if you don't have the sort of training, I guess, if you don't ha- sort of have that training to understand what is going on in your own mind and your own emotions, then you're reacting all the time. Mm. And a lot of people were just reacting to their own feelings of fear, not understanding what was going on in the world and an easy way to deal with fear is to find a common enemy and say, oh, that's the reason that I don't feel good inside. And a lot of things became very 
very loaded politically, mm. uh, especially in North America. I'm not sure how that was going on on your your side of the, yeah. the planet. It's happening everywhere. Um, yeah. And, yeah, there was an opportunity for us to really create a global change there and uh, it's just gone through these these weird phases um, and, and now we're at this stage where we just don't know what to do next, <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, um, one of the things I did want to talk to you about um, was a thing called dual diagnosis. Mm. Uh, and it's never just the alcohol. It's never just the drugs. It's, it's, there's always an underlying mental health issue. Um, and usually one, one sparks the other or one fuels the other. So mm. did you find that um, with your experience? Yeah, yeah. I I think it can be tricky at times because if you if you are in active addiction, it can mimic the symptoms of mm. a lot of mental health uh, concerns as well. But I I did start suspecting in high school that there was some, and that's when I was not necessarily drinking alcoholically. That there was something there was something not right with me. Uh, I was very obsessive. I was very moody. Um, and I came across a book on borderline personality disorder and I read it and I was like, oh, wow. I felt like they, I almost felt exposed and I almost felt, I don't know, like, like how dare there be a book about a disorder that describes me so well? Um, I found it hard, mm. but I also didn't have a diagnosis at that time, but after I started drinking heavily and I was in and out of a lot of uh, mental health institutions as well, I, I did receive a diagnosis for that and also for uh, anxiety disorder. But it's tough because once you're in the thick of substance abuse, it's really hard to know, okay, did I drink because of these latent problems with, with my, my personality disorder or my mood disorder or did my engagement with substances as a means to medicate my emotions rather than deal with them, reinforce issues that were already there, and then led to me acting out something that looks very much like that, but if you took the substance away, maybe not, right? So it's, it's, it is really tricky. And I also think that um, there can be a bit of a problem in the mental health world of seeing a diagnosis as a permanent condition. Yeah, that, you know, if you have a especially something like a personality disorder, like, oh, my God, that just sounds like a it sounds like you're being sentenced to being, you know, there's something wrong with your personality. And that um, and that or like if you have bipolar disorder or a lot of these disorders can seem like not a death sentence, but a sentence to a lesser life. Mm. And um and can also, I feel, become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because after I got the uh, BPD diagnosis, I found that I was giving myself a lot more permission statements to act out mm. because um, I had an alibi in a way. Yeah. Um, but it's really, really tough when you do have a, a mental health diagnosis and a concurrent addiction because if you take one away, the other one acts up. Yeah. And then you take... So when I uh, when I took the alcohol away, all my obsessive energy and my fear of abandonment, my feelings of emptiness, and all of those things elevated quite a bit. And, and I would deal with that by becoming very obsessive about my body, or I would um, start becoming obsessed with uh, 
someone who I wanted to be in a romantic relationship with, or I would start just having very dark thoughts and um, moody all over the place. And then the alcohol seemed like the only thing I knew how to manage that Mm -hmm. and the anxiety as well, because not only is alcohol a depressant that disrupts your nervous system, it's it's also a learned thing because you learn that alcohol is the thing for me. I mean, it could be drugs for someone else, but mm. you learn this behavior that I have anxiety, I drink, I medicate. and But it also is a cycle of depressing. So then after you stop drinking, you feel super, super, super anxious, but you've also reinforced the behavior. Mm. Um, so it's really, really, really tough to treat both at the same time, but it's also very hard to just isolate one and expect the other one's going to get better. Yeah. That's why um, professional help is really, really important in, in those instances where you got that dual diagnosis happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, Tara, your podcast, Addicted to Recovery, tell us all about it. Okay. Uh, well, like I said, it was just kind of an idea that I, I think I, I made up. I'm not sure if anyone else is doing exactly that, but there are, Generally, the the format of the podcast is I read a chapter from my memoir and then talk about the issues that came up in that in that episode a little bit and what my perspective on on that is now. And I invite people who have listened to the podcast to email me to ask questions or comments, and that can inform the direction that the next episode takes. So I've done a lot of I've changed what I've written quite a bit in the process of doing doing the project based on some of the feedback I've received from people and based on the kind of questions that, that they're asking and also based on just continuing to have different experiences and insights as, as I go about it. So it's been a really remarkable experience for me to, you know, I, I don't really feel like everything happens for a reason, but I feel like meaning is a choice that you can make. Mm. And when I, when I've done this podcast and I've received feedback from people that it's been helpful to them in some way, it allows me to give meaning to all the years that I was drinking and relapsing and suffering. And, and that's really powerful for me. And it gives me an opportunity to feel like I'm in service as well. I mean, I, I am still in service in my 12 step communities, but to be in service with in a way that is consistent with my own recovery because I am a creative person. And I feel like one thing that we don't talk about enough in recovery, in my opinion, is how to personalize it, how to make it yours, how to find what lights you up specifically. Because sure, you can talk about self-care in this generic, a bubble bathy kind of way, but it's not going to resonate with everybody. So I feel like in a way, a lot of addiction and mental health is problems can be a bit of a sickness of the soul that you haven't found a way to connect meaningfully with what is important to you. And I've always been someone who was creative and that's how I connect with myself and that's how I connect with meaning. Um, so it's allowed me to integrate that part of myself into into recovery. And so, yeah, it means a lot to me. And I hope to be able to keep doing it. I feel like I am going to run out of material eventually because you know I'll run out of chapters in my past but maybe I could make some up now nah, nah, I'm not James Frey <laughs> never mind <laughs> I really love something that you just said there Tara and that was a sickness of the soul 
Mm. Um, you know, and another a bit of a theme that I've found when I've spoken to people who are in recovery is um, being of service. Um, and and pretty much anyone who's been on this podcast, you know, um, I used to have a question that I asked, which was around what their mission was and, and what their purpose was. And the underlying theme through all of it is to be of service. If we look at a global kind of purpose, it's to be of service. So I absolutely love what you said there and it, it that really resonated with me. Um, so I'm curious then um, to know what does being ethical mean to you? See, as I, as I mentioned before, my main ethical principle is humility um, in that I can't tell you what, what the answers are because, you know, the moment I know, the moment I'm talking at you from a place of arrogance and the moment I block myself off from, from continuing to learn. Um, but generally, I feel like my ethical principles right now are quite rooted in Buddhism and Stoicism and the idea of trying to do your best with the information that you have and to try to appreciate what is already present and to try to keep growing in wisdom and depth and awareness to have a good relationship with your own life. Mm. Um, so, and what's on your short and <laughs> shirt and the, and the principle and the sort of tagline of this, this podcast, mm. you know, it's, it sounds like one of those, it's, I hate things that become memeified or cliched to a point where the depth of their meaning is actually lost because be the change in the world, though some people think it might be trite, is so true. Mm. Because also I find that as I change, the world around me changes, not literally, but I start to experience more of what I am putting out there. And if I am coming to a person in a spirit of being loving and generous, I find that I get a lot more love and generosity back. And if I am approaching the world in the spirit of service, I find that people are a lot more willing to help me out too. Mm. Um, so there is this sort of reciprocity that starts happening um, just as in the same way as as when I was putting as when I was approaching life with anger and resistance and sadness and lack of gratitude, I was getting all of that back too. And mm. yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a roundabout no. answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could give one piece of advice to someone listening who's mm. struggling um, with addiction and knows they need help, what would it be? It might sound really simple, but the most important step is the next one. And I'm not talking about the 12 steps, mm. but it's a matter of letting your feet do what your mind might not want to. Because the only reason I got and stayed sober this time around is because I stopped trying to think my way out of it. And I stopped allow because the problem is my brain is also a really good lawyer for my worst ideas. Mm. So um, I just showed up where I was supposed to show up and I just did the things that I thought I was supposed to do. And 
that reinforced different habits in my mind. So it stopped being like, you know, oh, I'm anxious, I drink. It's like, well, I'm anxious, I push through it, you know, and it stopped being like, oh, if I don't want to do it, I'm just not going to do it. It's like, I am just doing this and I'm going to push through what I, so it created new connections mm. in terms of the standard that I was setting myself to without even really knowing it. And things that used to feel hard became easy just because I just kept doing it. Exposure therapy in a lot of ways that's what a lot of recovery meetings were for me, <clears throat> excuse me, um, facing my fear of other people and my, my fear of uh, that. A lot of it is, is fear of other people. And I feel that gets lost a lot in a bit of this sort of uh, like kind of safe space culture that, you know, wants everything to feel good and doesn't want to talk about hard things because we don't build that resilience. Like I was so fragile when I was drinking. Mm. I thought that everything was going to kill me. I thought my feelings were literally going to kill me. And everything seemed like a big deal. But it, when I just let my feet do the thinking in a way, you know, um, things stopped seeming like, seeming like as much of a big deal. Oh, Tara, I just love the way that you put things. Like you say the things that we think that we can't put into words in such an eloquent oh. way. I absolutely love it. Um, Thank you. So um, the, I've got the last big question for you, but I think you've almost already answered it for me, but I'm, I'm going to throw it at you anyway. What's the change you'd like to see in the world and how can we bring it to life? I really feel it begins, as you said, like on, the, on an individual level. And, but I feel that we, the people like you and I who have sort of done the internal work ourselves or kind of in a space where we can do some of that work have to pay it forward in that we have to try to be patient and loving and and bring these ideas to people who might not be living their lives as consciously and obviously we can't change other people if they don't want to be changed but um we can continue to change ourselves and we also can try to at least lead by example with the people in our lives. And it's hard because I fail every single day in be living up to all the ways that I want to be in the world. I fight against my own introversion quite a bit and I want to be more present for people in my life, but I also want to be by myself. So it's this constant tug of war. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it starts at the individual, but also in the sort of micro communities Absolutely. Have. And I couldn't agree more. And, and that just absolutely resonates with everything that this podcast is about. And I, and I knew there was a reason we had to connect. So yeah, I'm so glad we I'm so glad we did. <laughs> yeah, I, I had listened to your podcast after we initially connected. And I love the work that you're doing. I think it's you know, you're you're doing exactly what I talked about. You know, you're you, you're doing the work yourself and you're bringing it to light for other people. The only thing I ever worry about with with a podcast like yours or or mine is that we might be just preaching to the choir because who's going to seek out podcasts like that, right? So it's a matter how do we reach people that may not be seeking? <laughs> well, you know, all it takes is one person, doesn't it? You know, that's um, true. So if we can make that change and 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 wake someone up, well, then our job is done. But yeah. Tara, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the ethical evolution. It's been absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you and I hope we stay in, stay in contact. I'd, lo I'd love to stay connected with you all the way on the other side of the world. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. 
If you're ready to be the change and would love to work with me on finding your voice through spiritual coaching or creating your own podcast with impact, visit ethicalchangeagency.com. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business, spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Yeah.